Hi Chris, how are you? Yeah, good evening Rod. Here we are, Monday's come around again and it's the 11th of December and it's episode 98. It certainly is and though I do say so myself, we've been a lot more consistent with the Mondays recently. We have, until next Monday when I definitely can't make it. I had to go and say it, didn't I? Yeah, I've got to go shopping with with my lady. So um, we got, I'm taking her to London for the day. What a treat for me. That'll be fabulous. Bit of John Lewis, bit of Oxford Street. Yeah, and actually I want to take her down New Bond Street because I walked down it last week when I was in London on my own and the lights were amazing and all of that. And I thought, actually, she would love this. So I said, said to her, why don't we come into London? We can do a bit of shopping. We can have a nice lunch. And we can see some of the lights because obviously it gets dark early and we can still get the train home and not be back too late to see the children. So that is my plan for next Monday. So I apologise ahead of time, but we will have to either record on a Sunday or on a Tuesday. But I can't imagine there's going to be a lot of news because it's the week before Christmas. But who knows? Apple may release some AirPod Maxes like they did one year, but um, apparently that was four years ago. That came out this week. Four years ago they got released. I think their entire engineering might is focused on getting the Vision Pro out the door. Or the whole new range of iPads that come in, in, apparently, which I'm quite excited about. Or the new MacBook Airs that come in, but I imagine they're just going to be a cheeky rev. Or the oh, the Mac Studio, but again, I think that's going to be a rev. Or maybe they're actually working on the Mac, Mac Pro and going to be good with it. Or maybe Seems not. unlikely. Seems unlikely. Well, I was in Brussels this week and the Christmas lights there were fantastic. And it smelled of beer and chocolate, so I think that's hard to beat. Oh, no, that sounds pretty good. That does sound better than London. London was <laughs> lovely. But well, here's just a, a thought thing that I thought, and this could send me off about the EU if I'm, if I'm not careful. I went to Hanover earlier in the year, and it cost five euros to get from Hanover Airport to the centre of Hanover on the train. About a 20-minute trip. When I went to uh, Brussels this week, it cost 10 euros 30 to go from Brussels Airport to the centre of Brussels. 15-minute trip. And then I reflected on the Heathrow Express, about 15-20 minutes from Heathrow Airport to the centre of London, 47 pounds. And I thought, there is a stark difference between us and the continent. Wow. And is that a bus or a train? That's a train. All trains. Right, okay, fine. I've, I've never done the Heathrow Express, because I know the Elizabeth line goes to Heathrow now, which um, I do use. But yes, travel in this country, very expensive, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, not impressed. Should we do some follow-up? Let's do it. I think it's over to you for point one. Yeah. So, on your recommendation on last week's show of cool things to buy, I went and I bought two Meros... Uh, on offer, Matter plugs for UK devices. Now, I've got Mero stuff. I'm going to preface this, preface this by saying I've got a bunch of uh, pre-Matter Meros ones. My garage door opener, which I've talked about a few times, is a Meros. So I've got the app. I'm signed into it. It's not a problem. That's fine. Not that you need any of these things for uh, Matter, it would seem, because you should just be able to do it all on HomeKit. I tried for 45 to 50 minutes when I put the Christmas tree lights up and all this kind of stuff with both these sockets on Wi-Fi, off Wi-Fi, on different networks, on 2G, on 3G, on phones on the beta, on phones off the beta, on restarted phones, on Macs. Could I get these things to work? Could I hell? What an absolute travesty of a rubbish piece of technology. Well, that is bad. Now, when I got mine, I did have trouble adding them on my iPhone, but I was running the beta, so I used my wife's iPhone, which is on the whatever version was live at the time, and it all worked fine. It is quite a kerfuffle because when I look this up, there's no like magic button to, you know, like reset the home kit cache or whatever it may be. It's because something's recommended quit the app, reboot your phone. And I was trying all these things. There does seem a little bit too much smoke and mirrors involved with some of this home kit slash matter slash Apple stuff. 
Yeah, and as you start digging into it, there's all these little things like you should have IPv6 running on your network. Does everybody have IPv6 in the network? I'd have thought so in this day and age, but who knows? I, I don't think you could guarantee it. So as it happens, I do, because I know what's on my network. I, I know I've got all these things. I'm not that bad with bits of technology, really. I've got all this stuff running. I know I've got several Matter bridges. My Who Hub is one now. I've got at least one HomePod Mini still running. I've got all the other bits and pieces as well, and my Apple TV, uh, the new, latest generation Apple TV, has got a Matter radio. So as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing I'm doing that's wrong here. No, it sounds like you're there, but it is so frustrating though because it's hard to diagnose which bit of the chain is broken. Is it the phone app that you're trying to add it to? Is it the the TV box because that's your home hub? Is it an iPad or something? I, I, yeah, I don't know the answer to this. I think I was lucky. But when I added my second plug, I'd completely forgotten I used my wife's phone. And there I was with my phone again trying to add it. I was like, why won't this add? Why won't this add? And then I was like, oh, yeah, I used my wife's phone last time. And then I asked my wife, can I borrow your phone? Added it. And she's like, why do you want my phone? And I was like, I just need to add this plug. And then I had to explain to her what I was doing. And like, I shouldn't need to explain what I'm doing to add a plug to my wife because she, she doesn't care. No, she doesn't care. And the other thing is, are they just broken? Have I got two broken ones that won't add? Who knows? Who can tell? Where's your fault finding? Can't do it. Yeah, that that is a point. I, I mean, I must confess, now I've got them in my home, they're fantastic. And I do think they are quicker. But I've got no desire to add any more at this point, I think. Well, I think these have been a, a travesty as far as I'm concerned. I'm not impressed at all on them. I, my old ones are still in operation, but I had thought I'd upgrade. Anyway, that's my story of war. If you've got any odd network or you're, don't, you're not sure you've got a Matt radio, don't buy Chris's recommendation from last week. Yeah, it's all my fault. It's all your fault. Second piece of follow-up is also me. And this isn't really follow-up so much as I just thought it was quite cool. Apple have a support link on their website, link in the show notes, to Mac keyboard shortcuts. And there's far, far, far more Mac keyboard shortcuts than you might think there'd be. And this is very exhaustive and goes through them all. And I think if you start scrolling through this, you'll be surprised at how many you get to. You know, Option Command F, for example, takes you to a search field in a document. Control A might move to the end of a line or a paragraph. There's all sorts of things in here that you're never going to remember them all. And as a Mac Power user, I know some of them, many of them, I thought. But as I scroll through this list, I realize I've barely got started. Anyway, I just thought it was pretty cool. I love that some of the commands even reference the the media eject key, which obviously isn't really present on any because that was when you used to have a CD drive and there was a literal eject button on the keyboard. Yeah, and I think I'm with you on this. I know a few of these. I don't know them all. Obviously, it's just far too many. But what is interesting, they seem to have uh, kept these up to date with, with various, you know, changes to the uh, operating system over time i think i just saw one there for like mission control and what have you um and then also spotlight and like you say stuff with the finder and airdrop and things so it's very comprehensive and these are massive productivity hack it's the same on the ipad once you learn some of the shortcut keys you're off to the races anyway i just thought it was a cool thing and if, if once a week you went and you looked at that list and managed to remember the keyboard you would zip through a mac with no problem at all did you know if you triple press the Touch ID button, it will bring up the Accessibility Shortcuts panel? There you go. That's a cool one. That's a cool one. Didn't know it was there. Didn't know it was there. Any other follow-up, Chris? No, I believe that's it. Let's do some news. And first story, and I saw that this referenced in a couple of places this week, about cops thinking iOS 17's name drop feature is dangerous, i.e. you could steal somebody's identity. Contact card is what you could steal if you bring your phone close to theirs. But 
I don't understand in what situation this is going to happen where you're not going to accept to share contacts because it's a it's an option when the the contact card appears on your phone to agree to it. So let's just talk this through. So you bring your phone near to mine. We don't know each other in this example. How does it know which way to share the contact card? Or is it a if mutual it, thing? It's a mutual thing. Your contact card will pop up on my phone. My contact card will pop up on yours. But you've got to have pretty much hands-on phone and phone like on top of each other for this to work, have you not? Like, yeah. yeah. So I think that's rubbish. I, I think it's rubbish too. So they, no, But a few police forces in America have been warning about this, including Pennsylvania and other places. And the police are saying, important privacy update. If you have an iPhone and have done the recent iOS 17 update, they have set a new feature called Name Drop defaulted to on. This feature allows for the sharing of your contact info just by bringing your phones close together. To shut this off, go to settings, general, airdrop, bringing devices together, change to off. But you need to agree to this. This is the thing I don't understand. It's not just going to be able to share it because two phones are close to each other. Yeah, it does seem odd. And you've got to hold the top of your phone close to the, the top of another iPhone. So it is quite a dance, I think. It's and, not something and, you can do accidentally. And both phones need to be unlocked. So you, you, it's not instant. You can't just... It's not It's not like the key card skimmers or something people that were using for contact, contactless cards or things. It's bizarre. It is bizarre, and I hope you don't mind, but in our show notes, I've moved up that you we had a link in there for iOS 17.2, adds name drop-like feature for sharing boarding passes and movie tickets. That sounds fantastic to me. Only at the weekend was I, I with my family at Legoland, and I wanted to give the you know the tickets to my wife. That'd be a lot quicker, so I'm curious to, to try that out. Um, and on that note, iOS 17.2, macOS 14.2, watch 10.2 home pods they're all out today at tv all the you know the non-beta versions are out today so do go and update your devices there's lots of good stuff in there there's even iMessages in the or messages in iCloud which i don't know what that does because i always had sync messages on but they seem to have obviously done something in the background i think this might be the full end-to-end encryption now where you can have all your messages synced to iCloud and it'll be end-to-end encrypted. So that's now live as well. I've been running it for months. It's all been fine. I just updated my Mac before this. So they're all out and if they feel like a great update. And if you're into journaling, that, that app now comes on the phone, weirdly not on anything else. But definitely worth a, worth a look. And I think there's some enhancements like to Apple Music favorites, you now get a playlist and things. So it's a good little all-round update following on the iOS 17 release which obviously has been not the most exciting one we've ever had but it's good good few little updates in there yeah i think that's fair just on the sharing movie tickets and boarding passes i've had this some airlines you go on the website and you download the boarding passes and it gives you all four to one phone which isn't ideal so the ability to share them to other people particularly most airlines even for younger children they expect them to hold their own boarding pass and passport as they get close to them so having that on your phone and, and being able to hold your passport passport is a big deal and the movie tickets and like legoland is a great example as well so i'm with you i think this is a good thing i think the police are overreacting to the, the original part of this uh, as chris and i are talking our reactions are popping off here so uh, thanks to zoom so i'm just going to switch that off if i can remember how uh, it's um, not zoom this is part of my OS now because I, I get it on iOS quite a bit. I was holding my head in my hands on a conference call, and, so, and my and my colleague goes, "Why are there balloons going up up the screen?" And obviously, it must have picked up something in my hand hand movement. <laughs> 
the joys of the reactions. I've switched it off now anyway. But yeah, I'd agree. I did install the beta actually of, of 17.2 so I could see the journaling app. I managed to journal for three whole days before I got bored of it. And it still reminds me at seven o'clock each night to go away and journal. I don't think it's for me. And part of that is the limitation, like you said, that I can't do it on a Mac with a proper keyboard. I can't do it on my iPad with a proper keyboard. I'm restricted to just doing it on my phone. That's rubbish. Yeah, for me, I do it on my iPad. That would be my device of choice. But I'm not a big journaler, I must say. I know I've bought my Kindle Scribe, but I haven't really bought it for journaling. I've bought it more for uh, note-taking. But anyway, great, great releases. It's great they're out for Christmas. Um, and we're out of beta land, which is, is nice. Oh, one thing just to note on the TV OS, that's where you get the new Apple TV experience, which is more akin to the iPad. It's actually quite good once you start using it. And actually, I can now see where the TV app could become a replacement for my home screen because it has all the streaming apps kind of within it as jump-offs. I haven't done that yet because I do like the home screen as it is, but just something to, to note there. It's worth, worth having a play with. Fair enough. Good. Get your updates while they're hot. Uh, moving on, uh, we talked about this last week or the week before about how 23andMe had been hacked. Um, we thought that some personal data had gone missing as part of it. Well, they've come out and admitted it now. So this is a Silicon Valley startup that was doing genetic um, profiling. Not profiling, that's the wrong word. I can't think of the right word, but they were... It was DNA, wasn't it? It was DNA, running your genome effectively to see risks at cancer, who you were related to, 23% white European, 14% uh, of of something else, those kinds of things. Anyway, 6.9 million users and their DNA data has gone. This is a horrendous security breach. I mean, talk about it being bad enough that your username, password, or credit card gets stolen. Your genome being stolen as well is just horrific. It's not good, is it? You'd expect a company like that to have one password like security one password is a like a security vault used for storing all your passwords in it you'd expect them to have similar levels of security would you not you would so to be clear the 5.5 million dna relatives profiles leaked during this included users who weren't part of the initial credit stuffing attack the data on them reveals things like their display name, predicted relationships with others, amount of DNA users share with matches, so that's how they link together, ancestry reports, self-reported locations, ancestor birth locations, family names, profile pictures, and more. Wow. It feels like a lot of data. It feels like a huge amount of data. So 23andMe says it's still in the process of notifying users affected by the breach. And you should probably change your password if you're on 23andMe. Bit late, mind. Yeah, agreed. They should have... I'm assuming companies like this have comms ready to roll for when this happens because it's textbook, isn't it? Well, you would think they'd do a bit more to protect it, really. But yeah, I don't. A lot of these Silicon Valley startups are proving themselves not to be the most tr- trustworthy companies in the world. Funny that. Yeah, it's all about getting the the revenue, isn't it? Getting the, the subscribers in, less about keeping them long term. Yeah. Moving on to other things that will turn out to be a bad idea. So this week, the. Part of our Online Safety Act, which we talked about at length on this podcast, is going to, they're going to try and enforce this, which is pornography age checking when people go to visit websites. So on the first reading, you might think this is reasonable. I think children are exposed to far too much pornography. It's too easy to get to them, to for them to get at it. Absolutely, from the stories my older children now, my, my children are both 18 now, have, have, have been reporting that there's an awful lot of this in schools from a very young age, and that's not a surprise to anyone. It's... A, an awful lot easier to get than it was. So as I say, on the face of it, I think this is fine. But then you think about this a little bit harder. And the way they want you to verify your age is to upload a photo ID, so a driving license, or a credit card, or a passport. Now, 
we've just talked about even a company that looks after genetic information is viable to drive by attacks and being able to get these kinds of things so a company responsible for pornography you're going to trust them with your very sensitive documents as well what could go wrong yeah it doesn't sound great there's three options though isn't it you can upload photo id or they could use face facial age estimation technology so i guess whilst you're entering said website it's then going to scan your face and again not great or contact your mobile network provider to allow you access to adult content how long until that leaks as well so i don't think any of these are great um i wouldn't want to use a facial age estimation technology because i'd hate to think what age it's going to give me because i look much older than i am so i i don't think i'd want to know the answer to that yeah i don't want my passport stolen surely any child that wants to get onto this kind of thing will just find a fairly good picture of a, a parent an older sibling or you know some some face off the internet to hold up to the camera anyway or borrow a phone and anyway they'll just use a vpn you know or the tor network or something to go and connect to elsewhere it's a completely pointless effort to do something like this or they'll upload a copy of your driver's license for you yep yep i i just i think it's as with many UK laws at the moment, a very poor law, very badly thought through, that is actually almost impossible to implement. Yeah, I, th- I think I agree with you here. I think that is a problem with a lot of laws. They're trying to come into effect. A, they've taken a long time. This is not necessarily a new problem. Kids have had mobile phones and tech for literally 20-odd years now. It just feels like, why are we doing it now all of a sudden? I don't, I don't know. And the, the solutions they're coming up with just, I don't know don't seem very seem a bit archaic i guess is the word i'm looking for there's got to be a better way of doing this stuff yeah they need to get a tech guy in the room or girl tech guy or girl anybody somebody technically able would would help rather than somebody that's (laughs) technically inept yeah just somebody trying to win the odd vote maybe anyway enough on that moving on and talking about other things this may be slightly better i haven't decided about this Apparently, IBM and Meta have uh, joined up with 50 other organizations to promote an open source AI um, foundation, really. And I think that's probably a good thing. Uh, Open source technology has taken us a long way. You know, that sort of spirit of trying to make things more open so you actually understand what's going under the hood is good. Uh, You know, open AI is nominally slightly open in the way that it does things, but I don't really think so so i think having these and i know meta to be fair are walking the walk slightly here because their llama model llama llm i think it is is slightly open sourced so i think this is not a bad thing it does feel i don't know what's happening at meta but it does feel like something's happening at meta because they're also talking obviously of using the activity pub framework with threads they seem to be trying to um, rehabilitate themselves a little bit i think where they've previously been thought of maybe as not a great company and actually they seem to be trying to change their their perception and profile i'm curious to see where this goes because i see that as good because i'm personally not a fan of meta products and the way they operate but i do wonder if they are actually trying to maybe do the right thing yeah i think that's fair and if you look at some of the other companies and organizations on this list i mean it's it's pretty heavy hitters you've got companies like amd ibm obviously dell cornell yale a couple of french universities imperial college london institute for computer science intel who else did i think was interesting harvard university mit barclay sony red hat i think it's pretty good really that's that's quite a healthy group of organizations and then with the eu sort of trying to pass law to make vendors of AI technology be more ethical. This feels like a better way to be going. This feels like there's some guardrails around this now. Now, this looks great. So it can only be good, isn't it? And like you say, open source 
has given us so much. So it would be good to see something like this happen. And hopefully this helped build confidence in AI because obviously there's a lot of sceptics out there at the moment. So no, this can't be a bad thing. I agree. Moving on to a bad thing, and we talked about this before in terms of retinal implants and things like that. So I got to say our segues are getting better. This is a, a story on the register about an application for insulin delivery. So apparently, the, the, this is such a bad fault that these patients who have this device are at risk of hypoglycemia as a consequence. Omnipod 5, which is their insulin delivery system, is warning customers that its controller device isn't registering decimal points in every case, potentially leading to dangerous doses being administered. So if a user enters a 0.3 value, such as 0.3 or 0.30, any value without a zero before the decimal point, the device ignores it and would give you 3 or 30 units, respectively. That's really important with insulin. That's bad. Like, how is how has that not been picked up in what you might call testing or quality assurance. The thing that gets to me is I know how much regulation there are in medical devices. In the UK, they all have to go through an agency called the MHRA, the Medicines Health Regulatory Agency. And all the things that pharmaceutical companies or um, medical agent companies need to go through devices is huge. So to slip this through is i mean the hardware side of it will be tested exhaustively i know both the europeans medicine medicines agency the fda and mhra are now looking at some of the apps that do software to see if they should be considered medical devices as well there's a real gray area between software and hardware hardware is obvious pumps and things like this so i wonder if the same attention is being spent on software as it's on the actual pump to deliver the insulin itself but clearly it's such a huge component of the software that these things can't be missed yeah, now you've explained it. Actually, like you're right. Maybe the the regulation hasn't caught up with the with the reality of the of these devices and these products now. Yeah, and you, we know what it's like testing software. When you test software, you fall into the most obvious case. I will always type zero point three. You're not necessarily doing the shortcut. You got your little testing thing. You get what users just going to enter point three and move on. Well, they do, and you know any way software can be broken, it can, and that's why more sophisticated. Uh, debugging techniques should be used you know as part of software development particularly for something as critical as this yeah that's uh, it's bonkers this has been allowed out the door isn't it into consumers hands it is mental i remember when you and i started uh, doing our, our degrees here at swansea and one of the examples being given was was it the therac uh, radiation machine and that had the same sort of thing. It was for dosing, be for cancers. And they'd done the same thing with that. They, they, you could administer an incorrect dose by putting in that. And the second example was one of the Ariane rockets, the booster stage having a 16-bit operating system and the main stage having a 32-bit operating system. And the, their integers were different between them. Therefore, it blew up. These kinds of things are just inexcusable in software development these days. Your memory is far better than mine, I fear. That's, that, believe me, it's a temporary blip. But anyway, you should it should have been caught in development and quality assurance, as we say, because that's why you have automated testing and you test the extremes and the edge cases. Absolutely. Unit testing is a thing. Use it, people. Okay, Moving next, on. Next up, we've got a YouTuber who intentionally crashed a plane to get YouTube clicks. Like, this, what? this story fascinates me that a YouTubers are have such cachet now that they can even con consider doing these kinds of things. He's making enough money off YouTube to make a living and fly planes around and have a couple of them. And the story is effectively, you know, as the Verge headline has given it, the guy took off, 
deliberately said his plane was failing, I parachuted out of it and crashed the plane into a national park somewhere. Said he couldn't remember where it was. And if, obviously, you know, you've got, I forget, the NTSB, I think, is the investigation board in America. This is criminal. He lied to them that he didn't know where it was. He lied to them that the plane was broken. And there's a second link in that I've given in the show notes. This happened a year ago, and the guy's gone to jail. It's the long and the short of it. But there's an excellent overview by a guy called Mentor Pilot, which is the YouTube link, second link there, who goes through exactly what he did. And, that you know, how it was a beautiful old plane. It should have been well-maintained. You know, he, he analyzes what he did to jump out of it and all the rest of it. It's absolute nonsense. And he almost got away with it is the thing and i'm really glad he's been hammered as hard as he has been because how at risk are you he just jumped out of a perfectly good airplane and crashed it what if that continued flying and smashed into another plane or you know there's so much could have gone wrong there that it's just it boggles my mind that anybody could think this was acceptable i agreed or if somebody was hiking on the ground where it ended up because you've got no control over where it's going to go but the video he made was titled i crashed a plane yeah so you're already saying I did this and I was obviously made it worse by lying and and all of that and not explaining what he's done but you're literally providing video evidence oh, it's bonkers isn't it but but all the lying was, is the best bit so for example he agreed to provide the coordinates of the plane but didn't know where it was despite the fact he'd already been to collect the wreckage with a friend of his in a helicopter because surely they're going to want to go and get the cameras aren't they it's just like, they don't need the cameras. He videoed himself crashing the plane and put it on YouTube. I'd be sure it was cameras on the plane. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, that's why he probably went back to collect it. You yeah, know. Yeah. Yeah. But this is, as much as I think YouTube is good, and whilst I'm not an avid YouTube watcher, there are some great stuff on there. This is YouTube at its worst, or, or YouTubers at their worst, frankly. It's awful. I think you see all the human behavior, don't you? You get really clever, some fantastic content on YouTube by people at MKBHD and others, you know, who spend a lot of time and money and effort and are as professional as you could be. You'd watch them on television. It's that level of production. And then you get these kinds of idiots. It's it, who's, The whole point of it was to promote a wallet on his channel. Absolutely bonkers. Anyway, it's well worth watching the Mentor Pilot video. I'd recommend it. He does a really good overview of it. I'll put it on the list. Moving on to a little Microsoft story, and I think we did this with the Windows 7 story, actually, not that long ago. But if you pay an awful lot of money, Windows 10 will Microsoft will extend the Windows 10 license for three more years. Yay? One, I'm amazed Windows 10's com coming up for end of life. So we, we, we've still got 18 months to go, so it's October 25. It still feels quite new when I see Windows 10 in places, but may maybe that's me. Now, my organization's already moved to 11, so non-event for us. And I think most people should get onto 11. If you can't run 11, you've probably got a pretty old PC. So you, you probably need to think about upgrading it. But Microsoft do hang on to stuff for a long time. When, when did Windows 10 come out? I mean, it... It's a very good question. I don't know off the top of my head. I mean, the end of support for this is October 14th. 2015? Mm. Sorry. Well, at the end of support is 2025. So as you say, there's a little bit to go. The NHS will be slow to change. We talked about this in Windows 7 times. You know, there will be people who have to run the version of it. I know moving from Windows 7 to Windows 10 was a problem for lots of people because it was some dependency on GPU. It could You had to have something that could move the slightly better looking pixels around. But having done that for Windows 10, that jump to Windows 11 is less. But you do need the trusted platform module for Windows 11, I seem to recall. Yeah, you need to have TPM. So Windows 10 came out on July the 15th. Oh, sorry, the 29th of July. It was generally available 2015. So... 
it's going to go end of life 10 years after after it came out. That's pretty good. An iOS gets 10 years of security updates. And then you can buy three additional years. So that would take it to 13 years in totality. It's pretty good. Like you can't is, fault them for that. Yeah, it is pretty good. Um, in, oh. in related news, um, I was reading that Microsoft are debating whether to do Windows 12 or whether they just make it an update to Windows 11. Because I think they've struggled to get people to update to Windows 11. And I guess you're going to end up with more of a fragmented system. So do you just release, continue releasing feature updates and patches? And I, I don't think we know the answer yet, whether Windows 12 is coming later this year or whether it would just be a, you know, a service pack in essence for Windows 11. I don't think I know either way, but I do think it is frustrating with Apple and with Microsoft that you get all these big releases. And I think it does put people off. So are you better to do point updates every now and again and not have that fragmented user base? Yeah. Yeah, it's a thought for them, isn't it? I guess marketing people want you to sell the next big thing, don't they, with the new features and all the rest of it, whereas the engineers are probably just quite happy to patch. Yeah, well, the engineers probably just want people to use it, whereas marketing, like you say, possibly want you to buy it, but I think we've got so used to it now, and I think Apple, especially at the moment, you get a big release, but it's not really a big release. It used to be, but I think they could probably move more to a two-year cycle and carry on the, the bigger patches as it as it were. But um, it'll be interesting to see if they do Windows, if we're talking about Windows 12, 12 months from now. We will see. Moving on, a slightly worrying story for me. Um, there's a law called the 2%, it's not a law, it's more of a rule, the 2% rule, which both we have in Britain and in America for the use of governmental websites. And that is, they will only support browsers that have more than 2% market share. And apparently Firefox is perilously close to this 2% market share. I'm not surprised. I don't see anybody using Firefox. But it is sad because I used to be a big Firefox fan. Um, I am not a Google Chrome person. I do use Safari. I used to use Edge when I had a PC. And if I didn't have that, I'd go to Firefox. So I'm not surprised at all. So on this representation on the website here, on his website, 2.2% of users are using uh, Firefox. That's a worry. 8.4% Edge. That can't be good for Microsoft. I'm sure they'd want that a lot higher. 34.8% Safari, 49% Chrome. Amazing for Safari, i got to say. That's you know There is a, a distinction for in-app Safari, so we'll drop that because there's Android web views as well. But uh, yeah, Chrome, stunningly dominant. Safari, not far behind. But there's lots of things use Chrome uh, underneath the covers, isn't there? Like the Arc browser I was enamored with for a while, the Brave browser, things like Visual Studio Code make use of Chrome uh, as, as an engine in, underneath it. The Slack app does. There's lots of things that actually use Chrome, even if you're not aware that they do. Uh, but Edge is Chrome, isn't it, underneath as well? It's yeah, the same it is. rendering engine. Um, I think actually Edge has probably gone up. I think where Microsoft have started investing in Edge and they're putting the AI pieces into Edge, I think Edge is gaining a bit of market share. It'd probably been a bit lower. So it is sad about Firefox. I think it's healthy for Chrome to have some vendor-independent competition because obviously Safari is done by Apple, Edge is done by Microsoft. They come with the OSs. It would be great to see Firefox you know, challenging Chrome, but sadly I fear that's not the case. Well, I'm using Firefox right now. I think it's a terrific browser. I'm happy to continue using it. And if it goes away, I will grudgingly go back to Safari, I guess. Yeah, I, I've never really tried anything else on my phone. I think I've been on Safari since my phone came out, pretty much. So I'm quite happy with it, though. So I've, I've got no need to change. I think on computers, though, less than phone. The phone, the phone is just Safari, no matter what you do. Yeah, true. That is true. Sorry, I was just reading the uh, next link as I was seeing what you so, put in the notes here. So this is fascinating, and there's a it's a Mastodon post, but it links through to another article. 
And I, I, this came across Mastodon. It was posted by, I can't remember who to begin with, but this is it. some hackers finding evidence of a train company in Poland deliberately bricking their trains effectively if they found out they were being serviced, not by the manufacturer or by another party, making them run slowly, but not people to start. There was a whole bunch of stuff that was going on for the software on these trains. And these guys reverse engineered the problem and fixed the trains and software. Now, these are some good guy hackers, but it's just the most incredible story for the, these Polish trains and all the things that were going wrong with them until they figured this out. That is A, very clever, but B, what a thing to invest your time and effort doing to make it appear as your train's got, it sounds like random breakdowns to stop you getting it serviced by non-official like companies. That's not good, is it? Yeah, so in, in the article, before the maintenance, the train was operating. After the maintenance, it no longer wants to run. The work of getting the first train up and running like the train itself has not progressed one millimetre while the manufacturer refuses to help. Two mobile trains are sitting in the workshop. The third misses its inspection due to battery failure and a fourth train is sent to maintenance instead. The maintenance company wants to take advantage of its presence to tow one of these that won't run. There's a whole bunch of this that goes, but every train that goes in for servicing won't start up again after the servicing. It's not good. I... Yes, they want to keep it under warranty, but surely you've voided your warranty once you've had it serviced by somebody else and they should log that, that it's been serviced by non-official services. That's probably a more ethical thing to do at this point. Yeah, a condition in the code has been written to disable the ability to run a train if it spends at least 10 days in a location, in a workshop, so the GPS on the train works out where they are, knows they're not the manufacturer's workshops, and bricks the train. Oh, that's awful. That That is not healthy behavior by any company it's just amazing isn't it but like i say the effort they've put into engineering that they could have spent that effort doing some good engineering surely they could have i mean presumably the rest of the trains are fine but this kind of absolute lock-in where you know you've bought the train i can't believe trains are cheap you know to, to, to manufacture so they're very bespoke aren't they yeah, they are. They've got to run on a particular gauge of railway. They've got, you know, all the safety standards have got ahead and all the rest of it. And then to do this to them, it's just amazing. Yeah, not good at all. I'm quite impressed with the article, though, that, that walks through it all in and demonstrates it. It looks quite a good website, actually. Yeah, it's a super interesting article. If you've got a bit of time and you're at all interested in software engineering or reverse software engineering, it's absolutely worth a look. Speaking of something that's not worth a look, Google has a new demo for their Gemini software, which will eventually become Bard, I guess, and take it to Copilot and OpenAI. They did a big demo. If you watch the demo, it's really quite impressive, all the things it can do, but it's not real at all. It's smoke and mirrors. Time, times were shortened. Things were made up. It's not actually representative of the, pro of the product, and I think that's really dangerous for Google. Yeah, why are you doing, why are you doing that? Particularly shortening sequences, people would accept it at the speed it goes at, unless it's just appallingly slow. Yeah, it. Yeah, it's not good, is it? Just stop it, Google. Just show what you're doing. I think Google is struggling because they they're behind, and Microsoft, obviously, and OpenAI are out in front. And I guess Google aren't used to being in that position with with this kind of tech. They're showing themselves as a really scummy company at the moment, aren't they? With all the things we've been reporting on the last few weeks of their approach to users, of you know their shady deals with Apple on browser share and market share, all the things going on with Epic and Fortnite and that trial, their use of app stores, they're you know they're modifying the Google Maps things so you could actually carry out search on users that were doing it. All of these things are big hits against Google. Yeah, and they've 
they've kind of been a bit like Meta in a way, haven't they? You know, they're collecting lots of data on you. You know, they're just an ad revenue company. But unlike Meta, they don't seem to be trying to really rehabilitate themselves. Yeah, they're not doing the best job of it at all. Not at all. Apple has also joined the AI game. They've really opened it. Well, they haven't open sourced, but they've released their own model framework last week, actually. I haven't had a chance to take a look at it yet, but they've had a very, the Verge article linked to, they've called it a very conservative approach to AI. But they've kind of quietly got on and released frameworks and model libraries to, to run on the current generation of, of M1, M2, M3 chips. And it's available in a GitHub repository and you can download it. So fair enough. This is a competitor to things like PyTorch and Jax and ArrayFire, so various other sort of machine learning libraries. And I think this is good that Apple are doing this. It's got, it can't be bad, can it, that they're, again, putting something out in um, open source. And um, they've called it M- MLX, which isn't a very Apple consumer name, which kind of shows it's obviously for a tech audience. And it feels like they're just maybe in the background doing it very quietly, which is what you want, I think, at the moment from Apple, because they're behind with series we know and i think it's good that, that they're doing this because you don't often see this from apple that they release something out there for just general consumption to play with so it's got to be good that they're making the right noises because like i said i think with the siri piece they've, they've been so far behind for so long and so and i'm going to say unresponsive to do anything about siri and so you've got to hope that they are doing something in the background with some form <laughs> of machine learning some form of large language models and anything they did in this space just to hear them making some noises on it is got to be positive because they do need to deal with siri at some point in time they do and they need to catch up don't they i mean we're just talking about google losing the plot and that they had something at least bard was something it wasn't nothing and it seems like this is at table stakes now so you've got to have an llm out there in order to you know show something they're beginning to prove their uses good or bad they're beginning to prove their uses and hopefully that federation of companies that we talked about at the top of the show will, will influence this in some way but getting it in at dev's hands and seeing what it can do running on hardware at whatever efficiencies apple can bring to it i think is really important and as you say i think at next wwdc we want to see this built into siri we want to see this built into the operating system you know all, all these features that it can give you that are reliable what's going on with the screen you know the heads whatever needs to happen to it they need to get on this and they need to build it. And the only way to do that is not internally. They need to get it in a very clever dev's hands. Yeah, and see what devs do with it. I'm curious as well to see future chip design. You know, are they going to have AI, you know, sections when they show us what the next M4 or M5 looks like? Are they gonna, Is there going to be a big bit in the corner? This bit does all the AI reasoning and it's optimized for AI efficiencies. It'll be interesting to see where we go with it because surely if anybody can do the software and the hardware... Is Apple, and they usually lean into that. So I'm surprised we haven't seen anything yet, but you never know. You would hope so. And I, I do feel Apple are behind on some things. Like, for example, the, the ATB guys were talking about it this week in terms of uh, classifying your photos. So when you put your new photo onto your, new, your, your photo library onto your new Mac, it sits there and it spins along and it indexes them all again and it re-adds faces and it does this and it recognizes your dog and all the things that it can do. But it does that on every single device. Does it on your phone? It does it on your laptop? It does it on your new Mac? It does it on your iPad? And that's fine as far as it goes, but you would have thought some ability to share the metadata generated by the model between your devices securely via iCloud or something like that would be a far, far better way of doing this. They need to leverage AI and cloud-based technology that they've now got because they're falling so far behind other photo management software. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And they've got my iMessages. Um, some people they've got their passwords for. 
Surely you can store metadata of photos and what you've learned from it. Um, maybe you want to use the processor on, you know, on device to do all the processing. I get that. Why wouldn't you distribute the compute and so you're not paying for it in your data center? But then surely once you've got the results of that, centralize the storage of it. Um, I'm surprised that they don't do that. But um, yeah. may, maybe they will have to change that model. Yeah, I think they really need to think about it. And this lets them leverage that a little bit more securely, you would hope. Yeah, and they can lean into, oh, the world's moved on. We're now doing proper end-to-end encryption. We can do this. Yeah, exactly. Last story for the news, and just a very quick one. A surprise to both of us, I think, is that Apple are going to uh, release the podcast app for Tesla vehicles. Where did that come from? I thought about this after we spoke about it, so I was surprised when it came out because Apple have never really done anything with podcasts. It's not like you can get it on your TV or your PlayStation like you can Apple TV or Apple Music. But then I thought about it. They do Apple Music on Tesla. They're now going to do Apple Podcasts on Tesla. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a bit more of this because Tesla clearly aren't going to do CarPlay. And so maybe this is the halfway house of, okay, you're not going to do CarPlay, so why don't we make our apps work for you? And then this might work for GM as well if they're really not going to do CarPlay. That it still gives Apple a mechanism to serve their content um, and have people be, you know, sticky with their apps, as it were, like Apple Music and, and Apple Podcasts. Maybe they do it with Classical. Doubt it, because um, <laughs> they can't seem to get anything with that. But it, it's a way of then keeping their user base going. And they've done it, like I say, with Apple TV on various platforms. I think they've just been very slow to do anything with it, with podcasts and with music. But maybe they're learning that actually... We're not just, we can't just provide it on the OSs that we, we provide. We need to be OS agnostic. Whether pod, Apple Podcasts will come to Android, it should. Like, that seems like a no brainer. You've got Apple Music on Android. I can't remember if you've got Classical on there. I doubt it again. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't they do all their media consumption apps on everything? And they kind of need that policy. Media consumption, we will offer it everywhere because we want you to sign up for the service. Podcasts is a bit odd. But I don't know if they make some rev. They they do do some monetary ones. So maybe they're aiming because there is a service revenue in there that they will become platform agnostic. Whereas I guess historically they weren't generating any revenue from podcasts. Whereas now they are. That's interesting. What comes next, Maps? That's a good one. I doubt it. You're not making money out of it. I think it will be service revenue led. Well. I don't know how much money they make out of podcasts, and let's face it, Google are the main map supplier for Tesla. That you navigate, that's what comes up is Google Maps, and nobody could argue. I think that, particularly shorn of all its advertising, Google Maps is really strong. But as a means of sort of convincing people that Apple have got you know skin in the game when it comes to mapping, offering people an alternative is not necessarily a terrible idea. It's not a terrible idea, but I think they will focus on revenue generation first, and then things like maps may become second to that. It's got to be an interesting deal, though, because what's in it for Tesla? They've got a podcast app on Tesla. I forget the name of it, but it's the one you get everywhere. Radio Now, something like that. I wouldn't know. Is it a, is it a revenue deal where maybe Apple pay? Like Google pay to have Chrome on Safari or Apple doing that for Tesla? I don't know. What does Tim Cook drive? What does Tim Cook drive? I have no idea. Steve Jobs used to have a Mercedes. He, he, all I'm thinking is, is there like 30% of Apple executives of Tesla's, therefore it's in their interest, they want their podcast on it, and they've done everything they can to get the podcast app on there? I'd be surprised if they drive Teslas. Well, as I've been to One Infinite Loop, there were quite a few Teslas in the car park. I wouldn't be surprised by that, though, because a lot of techs like Teslas, don't they? Hmm. 
It's like the ultimate computer, isn't it? If you're trying to develop their own car, you need to know what the competition have. That's true. What works, what doesn't work. Maybe. I'm surprised by it, but then I think in hindsight, not that surprised, especially if they want to grow their podcast revenue. Yeah, fair enough. Anyway, I think we've said all we can about that. Should we move on and do some media? Yeah, let's do it. Not a lot of media this week. Not a lot of media this week. I have, while flying to Brussels, it was only an hour's flight. Actually, it was only a 45-minute flight, so I had to have something for the flight. I downloaded the first episode of Taskmaster New Zealand. Pretty good. Not bad. Not Greg Davis. Not Alex Horn. Very much Taskmaster. Same format, same music, same randomness to the tasks. Five comedians I'd never heard of before, but that was okay. They were relatively funny. I don't think they do it quite as well. Maybe I just don't quite get the QB sense of humour, but I'm such a Taskmaster addict at this point that I think I'll persist. It was pretty good. Yeah, I guess because the UK one is so good, it's probably hard to watch another one, I guess, because it's it's a very high bar, isn't it? Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I, I, it wasn't a task I'd seen before, and that's quite good that they've got the inventiveness not to bring just copy what we've done in the UK and apply it to different comedians. That, it, there was definitely some high points in it and for me uh, you may or may not watch it but a task involving you've got to make a cocktail you've got to tell me what's in the cocktail everything in the cocktail has to start with the same letter so if you're making a car cocktail you've got to have chrome and clear vinyl and something else in it and so all that was quite good and one of them they made him drink it out of a leaf blower which i just thought was quite cool so yeah there's the, it's got the same sort of inane approach to tasks to it yeah, it is a fantastic show, and maybe I need to give it a go. But I love, I love the one over here, but my, I could see my kids going for another one. Yeah, it's got high points. You've got something on John Lennon. John Lennon. So this is on Apple TV Plus. There's a documentary, John Lennon: Murder Without Trial. Uh, it's okay. It's three episodes. Probably could have been one. It was just a little disappointing that there wasn't really anything in it. If if, if I'm being brutally honest, so I thought it was going to explain to me. You know, I obviously know he was assassinated. Um, it was okay, but it didn't seem to have anything new in it. I thought it might have some, maybe it's got an update 20 years later where they found something, but um, I think they could have done it in one go and it could have been pretty snappy. Um, I found the same with the Concord documentaries on Channel 4 recently. It was quite good, but they could have done it in one go and just shortened it a little bit because there was just a lot of repetition. Um, and I, I don't know, I think people are getting lazy at making things because because it's a lot cheaper I think to do longer things and you want to get somebody locked in for a couple of episodes and that's what we're doing now you haven't you know you're not paying for the film per se I know it's all digital you're just uploading it and off you go I just I don't know I think things are getting long and I think actually some things would be better a bit more succinct so the John Lennon thing was interesting but I was quite looking forward to it because you know I really like the Beatles I like some of his solo work I thought it'd be a real eye-opener but it, like I say, it didn't really tell me anything I didn't already know. So yeah, a little, little disappointed, if I'm honest. I expected more. You want everything condensed into a film, don't you? No, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think it was long episodes, but it just, I think they could have just been a bit more succinct with it. And right. like I say, it was the same with the Concord thing. I think it could have just been a little bit more succinct. Don't give me the repeats of what's already happened. Just let's, let's get straight to the me and bones. So a little disappointed. But in other news and better news, I have watched For All Mankind first two episodes fantastic so good and i love the way they caught me up and then demonstrated which part of the timeline we're in now and really threw you straight in the deep end i thought it was really good so yeah i'm with you would, would recommend it's it's a great series actually it, if one thing uh, apple tv plus are doing really well it's primarily sci-fi 
and for all mankind is terrific all the episodes have been great so far I'm still not loving that Apple forced me or they try to force me to watch a trailer and then a recap and and then you know the intro and and it's skip 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 please you know fair enough I don't mind a recap I haven't been watching it for a while but literally if I've just finished the last episode they should be clever enough to not show me the recap and I don't want another blooming trailer Apple thank you very much yeah, we need some of those AI smarts in here. Like, you've seen me skip it for the last five times I've watched something. Can, can we get straight to the meat and bones, please? Um, I'd agree with you there. Or at least give me a setting somewhere to go, don't play me trailers, don't catch me up each time, don't play the credits, just take me straight straight to it. Yeah, if, if, if it's something I haven't watched in 10 weeks, by all means, give me a recap. You know, I've, made, I've probably forgotten what's going on, but if I've just finished it or as I watched it last week very quickly after it came out, the chances are I'm into this and I don't really need the recap. And as for the trailer, I'm paying for you. Thank you very much. I don't want a trailer for things I'm paying for. Agreed. It's like pay, paying to skip the adverts on Channel 4. Very much. Uh, and on a similar note, I'm bang up to date with Slow Horses as well, which is continued to be absolutely terrific. And listeners at home, you won't see this, but I'm showing Rod a picture of a bus stop. And that is the bus stop outside where Slow Horses are based at Slough House. So there you go. I walked there the other week while I was in London and I thought I'll take a picture of the bus stop. I did take one of the building, but the, the building's pretty nondescript. But yeah, again, fantastic TV show and lives up to the quality, I think, of the first two series. It's really good and yeah, so well done. But I've got an interesting fact. So where it's filmed in London um, if you walk around the back of the building I thought I'll walk around the back see, see what's there not like that you then go into a private little square and on that square is the building that they use for Hercule Poirot where um, David Suchet used to play Poirot and that's where his apartment is on the back of Slough House which I thought was quite a cool little side bit so there you go I ticked two boxes that day I'm very impressed very good I, I know Hercule you're going to <laughs> well done. It wasn't one of my favourites. I didn't mind a bit of Agatha Christie. I quite like the Ken Branagh and Murder on the Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile takes on them. I thought they were pretty good. I've not seen any of those recent ones. I, which I can't believe because I do love I love a bit of Agatha Christie. I've been reading the novels. Have you seen the latest one with uh, Kenneth Branagh, uh, Hunting in, Haunting in Venice? I think it's called. I've not seen that either. Okay, that's, that's probably on- one we need to watch. That that's that's a Christmas one, I think. You know that, that 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 we tend to watch those Kenneth Branagh ones at Christmas, and I I really have enjoyed them. I think one of the castings in the second one, Death in the Nile, was challenging, so it kind of went under the radar. There was some impropriety around one of the actors that were involved, with it, and that caused problems for it, which was a shame because it's actually a pretty good who done it. But the first one was terrific. You can't although you can't take your eyes off Ken Branagh's mustache in them. Yeah, for me that was a little excessive, if I'm honest. But it's nice to see a different take. Because it'd be easy just to do the, the stereotypical prior, I think, so so I can't fault that. And I did enjoy when they had, John, was it John Malkovich played Poirot? They did like the ABC murders, I think, a few years ago. And um, it's nice to see some different actors have, do their take. He can do no wrong, though. <laughs> yeah, he's cool. I like him. He's very Sef- good. 70, did you know that? Oh, I did not. Yeah, he's great. It was, it was in the newspaper. Next up, Killers of, a, of the Flower Moon. We said, I think, last week it was coming out on iTunes or on Apple TV. And it is, you can now buy it, it's 19.99, and it is three hours and 42 minutes long, which actually, pound per per minute of viewing, pretty good. But three hours and 42 minutes, I think I quipped with you, that's more like a TV series than a film. That's a long film. I do want to watch it, but the time has just put me off it a little bit, because I'm never going to watch that in one sitting. And 
actually I don't know where I'm going to fit it in so I, th- I think I'm going to hold on for a little bit if it's not streaming by Christmas maybe I'll buy it but um, I'd like to watch it but that's a long film and I know Martin Scorsese loves a long film but that's ridiculous it sounds like it needs a jolly good edit frankly yeah it, it or it should have been two parts or something it, it seems odd to me like I say until I've seen it it's hard to comment but it could have I'm, uh, I think it could be a bit snappier I don't know, those Hobbit movies and some of the Lord of the Rings were three, three and a half hours long in places and they didn't split, well, they did split a very short book into very long movies, but they just made the movies even longer. I think if you gave them two parts for this, you'd have 12 hours of film instead of three and a half. Yeah, potentially, but maybe it's worth it. So it's tricky, but it has put me off a little bit, I must confess. Well, hopefully it'll come to streaming soon and we can we can assess it separately then. Yeah, should we get into games? Yeah, a very small amount of games. I have been slightly obsessed since I've come back with Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 Warzone, which only just dropped last Thursday, I think it was. So I'm a big fan of the Battle Royale Warzone. The improvements they've made to movement in Modern Warfare 3 are quite noticeable. It's become a fun game again. So you don't need to buy Modern Warfare 3. You can just download Warzone for free on your PlayStation, Xbox or PC and enjoy the best bits. So don't pay for Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3. Just download Warzone and have a fun fun time. It's great. That's fair enough. I just can't get into it. I don't know why. I don't, I, I don't know. I'm struggling to play games online at the moment, I think. You should have another go because they've released these two modes. There's the Battle Royale mode, which is the gas closes, kill everybody. And then there's Plunder, which you just continuously respawn. You don't die forever. You can just pick up money and run around and have a laugh with your mates while shooting other people. So it's that's the bit, I'd say, if you're not really into the whole hyper-competitive side of it, that's just a bit of fun, really. And there aren't any really consequences to it because you just respawn again. So uh, even if you're not mad keen, I'd recommend you give that mode a shot. Yeah, that sounds more at my street, I think, a bit less serious. I'd like a bit more casual, please. Fine, download it and let's PlayStation up. Remind me. <laughs> Remind me when I'm in the house. Next up then, so Grand Theft Auto 6 trailer is finally here. But they did have to announce it. I think it was about a day early in the end because it leaked. So they had to bring up their release date a bit. Have you watched the trailer? I have not watched the trailer. I'm going to try and do no spoilers for GTA 6. Okay, then you don't want to know where it's set or anything about it? I actually already know that it's set in Miami, right? Vice City. Yeah, so back to Vice City. I'm sure it's going to be bigger than what was Vice City because... I really like the Vice City game because um, I think we talked about it on this podcast because I replayed the definitive edition that came out re- recently on the Switch. Perfect for the Switch. Um, but it, the Vice City maps were quite tight maps. They were, it was quite a small set of three little islands. And so you could keep most of the maps in your head of where to go and what to do. Whereas I think past Vice City, the games got so big, it was hard to remember. But, you, know, you, you couldn't store the map in your head and know where to go across the whole thing. So it'd be interesting to see where they go with this. But it looked great the graphics looked amazing and you'd expect it to look good 10 15 years later um so yeah i'm, I'm, I'm quite looking forward to it i'm not that fuss about the online stuff I'm curious to see where they go with the single player story and i think i prefer it if you just have one character for the story rather than the three that we had in gta 5 but but yeah be good to see where it goes no i think that's fair uh the best thing about um vice city was the music i remember it had sort of an 80s theme to it it was terrific it was so good the 80s theme i loved all of it i loved all the cars i just loved the whole the whole era, I thought they did a really good job with it. I enjoyed the story. And you end up with a massive house in Vice City with the helicopters. You had helicopters and you could do stunts on motorbikes and things. It was just, the, I think, the most fun one they ever did. 
It felt. I remember now. It felt a bit limited to me because it was basically the same mission every time. You know, do this, get away. Do this, get away. Do this, get away. At least GTA Five and GTA Four had a more varied player experience with sort of the mini games and all the rest of it as well. You could do a bit more in the world, but then it was fairly early doors for the technology. So I think they did what they did really well at the time. Yeah, it was good at the time. I love. I don't know why. I just have fond memories of that game. Probably because I played it more than revising for my exams at uni. So uh, it, it it came at the right time for me. Fair enough. Should we move on and do a main show? Yes, do it. Okay, so the first part is quite a nice part, I think, of this, and then we'll just have a little bit of debate about the second. So it's the end of the year. We get best-off lists. We did one last last week, actually. But it's also the award season. So Apple have announced their uh, 2023 Apple Store Award winners. Uh, I noticed Mac Stories have done theirs th- uh, today as well, but we will other going at them because they didn't pick very interesting apps, frankly. So... Let's, if you don't mind, we'll quickly fire through the uh, Apple Award winners anyway. So the first, and I'll be curious to see how many you've tried. So for the iPhone app of the year, they picked All Trails. You heard of All Trails? Nope. Nope. So this is a bike, hike, run app for trails around the world, not just in America, although of course they are American ones that are showing. It's got fantastic reviews, 4.9 out of 5 for 844,000 ratings, which is just incredible. So it's obviously a really good app, but I'd never heard of it. No, I hadn't heard of it at all. It does look good though, actually. Yeah, I, I kind of want to download it, but I don't bike or hike, uh, and I like to take the dog to the beach rather than up trails, so I don't really know I'm the target market. I might take a look at it, because often I go for a walk, walk around the lakes where I live and the fields. would be interesting to see, does it have any of my area mapped? Fair enough. Next one is definitely up your street because it's an iPad app and I know you're about all things iPad and it's called Preta Makeup. 4.4 out of 5 stars, 26,000 uh, ratings. How often do you use this one on your iPad? Yeah, I'm definitely not the target audience for this app at all. So uh, sadly, no, not use this one either. So I've got 0 out of 2s thus far and I think you have too. Yeah, I don't know. My daughter, I think, would rather put real makeup on a real face rather than use this to do anything. So I, I guess it's for kids to learn how to do makeup without putting it on their face, I guess. I guess it's a bit more of a game, maybe, just to play around. So, uh, yeah, we are not the right demographic, are we? Yeah, I don't understand. I mean, I just genuinely don't understand that particular choice of app. But there you go. I'm not a... Again, I'm not the right demographic. Next app you've definitely got some experience of, and that's Photometer. This app's fantastic. We'd definitely recommend it's on the Mac. Um, it's a great photo editing app. Um, I've used it for a little while, actually. And I, th- I think it's really good. So, yeah, would would definitely recommend. This is interesting because we talked about these last two apps with the tens of thousands of users. This one is 4.6 out of 5 and has 506 ratings on the App Store. It's mental, isn't it? It's a bit of a drop-off, isn't it? That's just bonkers, though, isn't it? Mac app of the year, 506 reviews. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what to say. I'm sorry. I've just, like, I'm literally lost for words. I was just opening up Photometer as you were talking because I thought I'd just have a quick look at it. It's a fantastic app, but it does show, doesn't it? People just don't use the Mac App Store. There's just not that that audience there, whereas the audience, obviously, for the iPhone is huge. Yeah. I will say I tried Photometer. Um, I downloaded it. It immediately said, you get a week's free trial, and then I want you to pay an ongoing subscription for it. And I tried a couple of the effects and it didn't do what I wanted it to, so I deleted it and cancelled my subscription. I've got an exclusive lifetime offer for sixty nine ninety nine. Do you use it enough to justify that? Probably not. I do I I have already bought it on my iPad and I that's why I do most of my photo edits, to be honest with you. 
Fair enough. Moving on, the next one, and I need to get the title of this right, and because I, I haven't been reading about. It. This is the Apple TV app of the year, and it's called Mubi from Mubi, which appears to be a movie streaming service. Yeah, I never used it. Neither have I. I mean, I got to say, they're really reaching with some of these categories, aren't they? It looks like it's sort of particularly good cinema that you can stream from this, but the ones they're illustrating in the app, I haven't heard of any of them. No, I thought exactly the same when I looked at this earlier. So, yeah, I guess, though, what they do want to do with these awards, though, is not just show you all the apps you've heard of already. You don't want to see WhatsApp in here, do you? You want to see something different. Yeah, that's fair. And I guess something like this that's highlighting great films that you may not have heard of, you're not going on there for your blockbusters. If you're if you're interested enough to sort of dig away into the depths of the App Store for an excellent experience and highlighting something, then fair play. You know, maybe this would really show you something you haven't seen before. Looking at the reviews, they're all very positive. You know, you're not going to love every film you ever watch. You don't love everything, but this gives you at least one five-star film that I'm looking for at some point. And I think that's probably good. It might expose people to more world cinema, you know, genres they may not have considered before. So it's probably a good thing. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And like you say, it's got great reviews. Yep. Next Apple Watch app of the year is something called Smart Gym for Home Workouts, 4.4 out of 261 ratings. So again, the Mac App Store letting you down. Yeah, so they've got even less ratings than the Mac App Store on the Apple Watch, which I guess isn't a surprise, given that I don't own an Apple Watch anymore. I definitely haven't tried that one. <laughs> no, and it's not what I can see if you were into, you know, being at the gym and doing workouts and things like that, you might want one. We have lamented frequently how bad the rings actually are for motivating you to do exercise and all the rest of it, or not letting you put in rest days and things. So I think other like gentler streak that I use and others that do encourage you to be fit in a healthier way than, than Apple's rings uh, uh, are only to be lauded. So well done Apple for recognizing that these kinds of things are out there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Moving on, they do games next and they do iPhone, iPad, Mac and Apple arcade game of the year. And I'm going to fire through these really quickly and I won't go through the runners up because I want to get to our next topic a little bit without us going too long. So uh, the iPhone game of the year is called Honkai Star Rail which looks very manga-esque to me. I get this pushed in my face quite a lot, actually, whenever I open up my iPhone and go into the App Store. This is often at the top of every list, so it doesn't surprise me that this appears there. I don't think I've ever seen it, but I think I'm oblivious to ads generally, so I'd probably just skip it when I open up, up the App Store. This is one of those games that my brain just goes blank when I look at it. And you look at the second review. Honestly, for all the gacha games, this has to be the most forgiving and realistic gacha. I don't understand anything in that sentence. Yeah, what is gacha? I think we might be too old for this demographic. Yeah, quite possibly. Anyway, it looks very manga. It looks very colourful. I'm sure if you understand what gacha is, it's really good. Uh, Second one, iPad game of the year, Lost in Play, which I've also never heard of. Lovely looking art style, though. It does look cool. I do like the graphics here. No, I've not heard of this either. No, but the sort of first few reviews are all five stars. It's 4.9 out of 5. It looks like it's for slightly younger children. To me, help a brother and sister in an uplifting epic to find their way home. Solving puzzles, escaping a horn beast, and meeting quirky goblins. So it, it looks very nice. Uh, I'm glad that, you know, something of this quality gets the recognition it clearly deserves. Yeah, and to be fair to Apple, they've got a good mix of stuff in, in here, haven't they? You know, they've yeah, got a good mix of games, good mix of apps. Yep. Uh, two more, and we'll finish. The Lies of P, which is the Mac game of the year. 
Again, it looks super stylish, looks very highly ray traced to me actually. So maybe this is just to highlight the new features of, in fact, now I'm looking at this, I think this was actually featured as uh, on, the, on the demo at WWDC or in the, uh, the M3 demo. So I'm not entirely surprised they're showing this. Yeah, maybe it does look good. And like I said, I'm just happy that it's completely different to the other two games. It, it looks kind of cool. I'm not sure if I'd pay £50 for it because I don't know yeah. how to play it. It looks like a From software, which is Elden Ring, one of those sort of beat up the bad guys, super hard, lots of defensive moves to learn, all that kind of stuff, style of game. So I'm glad these are available on the Mac, really. Interesting, it's game of the year, whereas you look at the version history, it looks like it only came out two months ago. So maybe, maybe you're right, maybe it was one of the recent releases. Yeah, I think it was. And then lastly, on the, is this the iPad? I've lost track slightly yeah, where Apple I am. Arcade. Apple Arcade game of the year, so you can just download this if you're an Apple Arcade owner, is Hello Kitty Island Adventure. Yay. Nay. <laughs> don't think um, we've done the game. Yeah, we haven't done the games any good. So out of the eight things you've listed, I've used one, and that was Photometer. I've used Photometer as well and very quickly uninstalled it. I haven't really heard of any of the others. I'm scrolling down now as I look. I can see Unpacking, which is a game I know on the PC, has been very popular. But other than that, I don't know any of them. But as you say, the purpose of this is to highlight apps as much as that are particularly good rather than necessarily something you'd already know. So maybe we should have both follow up to go and weigh in, play a game and try an app from this list. So actually there is one under cultural impact winners, which is where, where I'm packing is. There's one called Too Good To Go. Have you ever heard of this? I have not. So this is an app I have used quite recently actually because one of my friends told me about it. So you install the app, you sign into it um, and basically you can find restaurants or like your co-op, you know, mini supermarket near you or whatever it may be and you can for i think it's like four pounds you can have like a bag at the end of the day of stuff that goes out of date soon and rather than throw it in the bin you can buy it so we like with my local cafe you know we, we pay and they and they give you a promise of you put four pounds in the value of the bag will be worth at least say 10 or 12 pounds and so you go and pick up the bag of stuff and like we've had um from the co-op we had some bits some fish and things so you could just freeze them so it's fine so it didn't matter that they went out that day and then from like the local cafe we've had some sausage rolls or some pastries or a donut or something and they just give you a bag like i say so you pay like four pounds but you get a value of say 10 or 12 pounds depends on, on the deal that they've got and it seems quite a good idea and obviously it's great for the the businesses because they're not throwing things out they're getting a little bit of money back in obviously not the true value of what they would have sold it for but it's it's quite a, a good little scheme i've done it a couple of times you literally put around the cafe at closing time and, and pick it up i'm installing it as you speak it sounds fast what a good idea so it's a good idea and who knows what what's signed up to it where you live but i mean i live in a small village and it there's two things on it here which is great and the next village along has got a couple of shops on there too so yeah would would recommend to have a look at it but i i find it odd that the cafe where i've done this doesn't advertise you know it doesn't have like a little stick that says you know too good to go friendly or you know or whatever it is because once you know what the app is it's it is quite good so yeah would recommend yeah i'm concerned that it's offering me greg's <laughs> I wouldn't know. I don't have a Greg's near me, but yeah, Greg, Greg's would be a good one because surely they're going to have wastage. But you don't know what you're going to get, so you pay four pounds, you just get a surprise bag, and off you go. Um, and they do loyalty and things. I think if you do ten bags, you, you get a free one. I haven't done that many, but um, it was an app that did. I did notice, and when I launched the app, they actually announced in there that they'd been an, you know, an Apple Award winner. Yeah, I think this is a. I mean, I genuinely think this is a good idea, particularly in times where you know families don't have as much money available to them, cost of living crisis, and all the rest of it. The fact that food waste is a huge problem, 
Oh, it's a huge problem, isn't it? People throw out food all the time. This is a, it's a really good idea. It's a really good idea. Well done. And I hope, you know, the next part of this is if you haven't paid your £4, they're giving it to homeless shelters or something like that in order to make the most out of this kind of food too because that's the next logical step is to, you know, make the people that can pay a little bit for it pay a little bit for it and benefit from that but to take it to the next level after that too. But but absolutely. To be fair to Apple, that's terrific. That is good. Yeah, agreed. Okay, good. Shall we move on to the next subject? So yeah, we've got uh, push notification spying. Yeah, we should have done these the other way around. We should have ended with a happy story and not gone to the sad one, really. So there's there's a couple of things here. Over the last two weeks, we were speaking about Nothing Phones, who had that really bad security model where they effectively had a Mac Mini in a data center somewhere where you sent them your username and your passwords, your Apple accounts, and they would set up iMessage on that and relay in the clear your your, um, password and username and send messages back and forth for you. It was found to be a bad thing. I think nothing lasted a day and a half before they had to take it down due to all the security breaches. But obviously it triggered something inside of people to look for these kinds of things. And in the background, there's a company called Beeper who claim to have a secure way of, of taking part in iMessage. And literally iMessage in, in iMessage on an iPhone will drop back to SMS if, if you're unable to complete over the iMessage network. This doesn't have this. This only send, send iMessage messages. And effectively, they promised Android users that they could become blue bubble friends and take part in many of the services that iMessage would give you. So it would give you typing indicators. You could send rich media. You could correct your text. I think you could do tap backs and things like that on the messages as well. So And stickers. So many of the features of the iMessage service were available to you. What's really clever about this up to the point we'll get to in a minute was that it was reverse engineered by a high school student in America called Pie Push or something like that. Quinn Nelson from Snazzy Labs does a terrific video on it. It was an open source project that you put on GitHub where you could download all the files for this in Python. You could put in a test iCloud username and password if you wanted, if you didn't trust it at that point. And you could effectively use iMessage on your Linux computer. So he, Quinn does this on a, a System76 laptop running System76's variant of Ubuntu, I think they have. And in a terminal, he starts sending iMessages, showing his phone, he's typing, comes up with a typing indicator and all the rest of it. If Chris reminds me, I'll put a link to Quinn's video in the show notes as well. But he does a really good run-through of the technical components. of, this. And it wasn't hacked, it was reverse-engineered. Basically, this high school student worked out that it's just Apple's push notification service. So it's not the message framework itself. It was just leveraging the push notification, which is everything whenever you get any sort of notification on your phone that was going on. It was really clever, you know. Fair play, high, high school student. I hope you graduate with a massively impressive degree. But this company, Beeper, took that and commercialized it and turned it into an app that you could subscribe to on the Android store, Play Store. To do that, so there was a lot of buzz last week about the fact finally you could have blue bubble friends. They were going to charge you a monthly fee, three ninety nine, four ninety nine. First week was free, and Quinn demonstrates in his video how it was going, and a bunch of uh, journalists on the verge and the rest of it were using that. So I think that's the summary of the situation up to last week. Does that sound re- relatively comprehensive? No, it does sound good. Apple should definitely employ this high school student though. Like, if you've got somebody that that can reverse engineer that. Why wouldn't you just pay them to reverse engineer everything and have them on your team rather than on an opposing team? What a clever individual. Yeah, it's fair. It's it's really impressive. Anyway, all this went on. And again, if you watch Quinn's video, it would be hard to think of a way Apple could 
protest, really. They're trying to be shown to be a bit more open. They're claiming that iMessage is secure and RCS isn't, and they're right with that. RCS and, and SMS isn't end-to-end -end encrypted. iMessage is. This maintains that security protocol and all the rest of it. And also, why would they stop this kind of thing when they're trying to look more open to the EU? and the American government and, and all the things. And in fact, the next step of this is Apple changed something and Beeper stopped working, as did the pie push uh, thing that the high schooler had done. So, okay, <laughs> I guess. I'm, I'm amazed that, the, that it all got this far, that this was even A, possible, because we keep getting told how secure everything is, and yet a high school student managed to reverse engineer Apple's messaging platform. Like how 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 did that even happen, and how did Beeper even think that they were going to be able to commercialize it and not have it shut down immediately? Like I say, I'm amazed Apple hadn't dealt with this earlier on, but obviously then they then took some steps to break it. I mean, Quinn's argument, I think I'll stick to as well, is hackintoshes are a thing, and hackintoshes are still a thing, and Apple has done nothing to stop that. Yeah, that's true. That's a fair point, but. I guess that's not into... Mm. Your Hackintosh mm. gives you access to all this encrypted stuff yeah, that yeah. we're just talking about. That is true. Okay. So it's a good argument, and eventually Hackintoshes will go away because the Apple will stop supporting Intel Macs and it will about Apple Silicon only, and maybe that's part of their agenda as well that they lose that. But I think fair use and all these kinds of things and reverse engineering a thing is expressly allowed under the dmca and other laws that you know you can reverse engineer stuff to make it work so nobody's broken the law here maybe they have a little bit of a charge and subscription to it I, I wouldn't like to get into that but nothing this amazingly clever high school student has done is, is against the law and that's good i think that even if it is as you suggested just for testing your security that people can people get in and can people do this that's amazing give this kid a job but I, I think people should be allowed to reverse engineer these things. If it's done securely and it's not putting the network at risk, and if it does put the network at risk, you haven't built it very well. Well, this is kind of my point, I think. Reading Apple's statement on it, we took steps to protect our users by blocking techniques that exploit fake credentials in order to gain access to iMessage. These techniques pose significant risks to our user security and privacy, including potential for metadata exposure, enable, enabling unwanted messages, spam, and phishing attacks. How was this left open for so long because it it sounds pretty bad yeah i'm a bit hesitant about that because that's fear uncertainty and doubt on apple's part of course you can say it's to do with security the second somebody does something like this because you don't want it to happen it's it's like oh won't somebody think of the children sort of response so while it's feasible i don't think it's the whole story that we're getting there yeah oh, i'm sure apple have put some spin on it but it doesn't look good for apple that that they're saying that it was a big security risk and it could have led to attacks and unwanted phishing, that had they not spotted this before now? Well, this ties into the second part of the story. So earlier this week, there was a bit of a hoo-ha, that's quite a good word to use, I think, about Apple actually allowing governments to be informed about push notifications. So a push notification from an app WhatsApp has sent such and such this push notification from this person. So you don't know what the contents of the of the message are, but you know that a push notification has been sent by someone to someone from this service, and presumably their location and all the other bits that would come along as part of a push notification. Cell tower, cell tower where they're at, what apps have got on their phone, whatever else would be part of that as well, or it failed. So 
the metadata around a push notification tells you a huge amount about what they are, where they are, who they are, who the contact was, what the app was, what's on their phone possibly. There's all sorts of stuff in there as well. So that Apple are expressly allowing not only the US government but foreign governments access to that kind of data combined with this, oh, that service can be hacked and things can go on. Might be just my paranoid brain taking a leap too far and there's nothing in this. But that's bad. It's bad that Apple supply that information to people without a subpoena. Google requires a subpoena for that. So that's bad on Apple's point of view. Uh, and then modifying it at the same sort of time, This, uh, this the two things aren't quite adding up for me. Yeah, it feels like the two go together, like you say. So with Apple stopping Beeper, have they now just stopped how they give the government this information? Um and obviously now Apple said they weren't allowed to disclose this before that they were allowing governments to do it. But now it's open, out in the open. They are allowed to disclose it. What else do governments have access to that we had no idea about? And what are they doing with all this data? Like, how do governments store all this data and how do they make sure it's secure? And at what point have we signed up that they're allowed to hold this data? Sure, it's GDPR that says they're not allowed to hold this data on us. I, I don't know. It all seems a bit, bit of a grey area. Yeah, I think we all need to go and hide in caves with tinfoil over our heads, frankly. I'm relatively calm about it, but I just don't know what you do with this data. Do you know what I mean? Like, what they do, like, literal, I was going to say reams of data, but obviously that makes it sound like it's printed, but but you've just got so much data on somebody. Um, how do they even start piecing it together? I guess it's for specialist investigations into people, if, if there's something dodgy going on, or they're running a criminal network, but wow. I mean, I guess so. In the absence of, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and take a positive spin on this. In the absence of knowing what's in messages, a criminal organization using some sort of application for push notifications where you're trying to profile them could give you an awful lot of information about them, couldn't it? I mean, it, it's enough without actually knowing what's in the messages to know to monitor someone in such and such a place and who their contacts are and what the ring is that's building up, where they are roughly in network. So I can see that. But I could also see the flip side of a very repressive government you know, monitoring what their populace are using, how often they're getting messages. Is there some app they need to be aware of that's growing in the background that they need to watch, you know, for the profiling of their population? So there's quite a lot buried in that with both my paranoid and less paranoid head on. I can see the pros and the cons, but it's verging into you're collecting far too much information on this Apple. And, and, and it seems to me kind of freely providing that, whereas at least Google are making you do all the relevant court stuff to get this. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. Like Apple, you shouldn't just be giving this away. You, yeah, there should be a legitimate reason why they want it. Um, but how often do Apple hold all this? Like, what's their retention like? Because surely at some point they don't want to keep this data forever. Every push notification sent, that's going to be a ridiculous amount of data. So it'd be interesting to know a bit more of the mechanics underneath it, I guess. But it's super interesting, and I assumed that the whole of a push notification was encrypted, but obviously I'm, I'm completely wrong there. No, it seems not. It's There's two fascinating stories, and like I say, I can see a link between them, however tenuous, that if lots of people are depending on this, they don't want people messing around with it. Yeah, that's true. Like I say, I'm amazed that the individual managed to get so far with it, and according to Apple, it's pretty bad. The fact they could spoof iMessages, that's no mean feat, is it? Yeah, again, I'm 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 slightly less concerned about that than you. I think that's a bit of spin on Apple's part. Yeah, it could well be. But I wonder what they're going to do with this. Whether Are they going to start encrypting more, do you think, as we go on? Or do they just leave it as it is and 
it just all disappears quietly into the background. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We'll see what happens with it next. So, yeah. So, I think that's an interesting story. We just need to keep an eye on for what, to, what the fallout of this may be. And when Apple do go on and they implement the RCS thing with Google, as they've said they're going to do now, how quick will they, will they push that towards end-to-end encryption? Or will they just be happy to leave this open? Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because they've lost a bit of the you should use iMessage with this recent break. So I wonder where they're going to. I wonder where they're going to come out with something. I don't know. I reckon this would just get forgotten about in in the Apple weeds of time. That's what I think will happen, and we it, it will be a non-story. And maybe a few years from now, we'll look back and go, "Do you remember that thing?" And they'll be like, "Oh yeah, I forgot about that." Maybe so. Should we do an app of the week? Yeah, let's do it. What have you got? I have got Keynote this week, which if you haven't looked at it in some time, is just a terrific app. I've been having to use it a lot recently. I've had a bunch of presentations to do, Brussels and my Italy trips and lecturing students and doing all the bits and pieces that I do. And I'm just always glad when I can use Keynote rather than PowerPoint. I like the animations. I like the fact I can get various magic moves and things to happen between slides. I'm very about being as lazy as I possibly can and reusing slide decks when I can reuse an animation and it persists. It just works very, very well. It's a very slick app. It works exactly the way I want it to. It's a decent alternative to PowerPoint. If you're lost in PowerPoint hell, I still find PowerPoint a bit odd to use from time to time because I've been a keynote user for so long. It's just terrific. And the little things they've added to it, like the ability to record yourself in front of it when you're giving slides, in case you do want to put it on YouTube or you haven't got time to actually go to the presentation yourself, but you want to send it to somebody and actually appear in your presentation when you're doing it, those features have just got better and better over time. And it's one thing I'm glad Apple haven't given up on. So that's my app of the week, Keynote. Yeah, I think to be fair to Apple, they've kept all the i what used to be called iWorks, so Keynote pages and numbers, They've, they've continued just kept them going nicely in the background i always recommend people use them if they've bought a mac or an ipad get them that you get them free they're really good unless you're swapping documents frequently with a microsoft based person you should 100 percent use them i just think they're so well done yeah w- would recommend i don't use keynote a huge amount i am a big powerpoint user i would recommend powerpoint like on the i on the iphone on the ipad because whilst it's a bit it's not the full Windows version. It also has got all the cruft of Windows. It's quite a modern app, and I think they've done a really good job with it. So that would be my recommendation if you are in corporate land like I am. But no, Keynote is awesome. I used to love using Keynote. I would also say that Keynote's export to PowerPoint function works extremely well. It's very consistent unless you're using wacky fonts and things like that. It's been pretty good for me, and that's the way I do when I have to give a PowerPoint presentation. Occasionally, I get a little bit of overrun, but it's good enough even in corporate land. Yeah, I, I, I stick with PowerPoint just because everybody I work with is on Windows other than me that's on an iPad. So it's it's my way of getting the balance right. I use the Microsoft apps, but I get to use an iPad. So that's that's my balance for me. Um, you love a Microsoft app. You love Teams. I do think Microsoft are doing a good job supporting the iPad, to be fair. There's a lot of functionality in the Office suite. I just wish Teams supported the uh, external webcam. If I could have one thing from Microsoft, don't update any of the apps for another year. Just give me the uh, external webcam on the iPad and I will be uh, really happy. Uh, Shall I do Thing of the Week? Please do. So I've done a book, a listen to an audio book by Chris Harris. If you remember him, he's a Top Gear presenter, or was, up until BBC recently canned it. And he's got a short biography out. It's called Variable Valve Timings. I've listened to the Audible book. There's a link in the show notes. It's not very long. It's about six hours, which isn't that long for an Audible book. And obviously I listen to it slightly quicker than one speed. I don't know how people do two speed. I just don't think my brain could process it. But anyway, listen to that about 1.4 speed. Um, it, he reads it. Um, it's quite an interesting book just about his life. And 
how we got into cars at a very young age wasn't overly academic but actually life turned out pretty good for him I think to be fair and how the first season of Top Gear that he was on was awful with Chris Evans if you remember that one and then got better as, as they went on really got on well with Matt LeBlanc who I do think Matt LeBlanc, Chris Harris and Roy Reid was my favourite trio of Top Gear presenters I just really enjoyed their dynamic I really like Matt's sarky humour but no I thought the book was good and it was nice pleasant listen so I would recommend if anybody likes Top Gear out there yeah, fair enough. It's a bit of a shame Top Gear's gone away and it's not an ignominious end, isn't it? Poor Freddie Flintoff. It was a sort of similar end, though, for Clarkson and Co. In that it was a, it's like the curse of Top Gear, I think. People don't have a good end on it. They just abruptly leave. And Chris did touch on it in the book, but he said, I don't want to say anything about it kind of thing other than I hope Fred's okay kind of thing because he was there on the day that Freddie had this crash that nobody seems to know anything about. So it's it's all a bit bizarre. It is a bit bizarre. That's a shame. I think we can call that a show, Chris. Yeah, I think that's it. So look, if anyone wants to get in contact, Rod is at g5maniac at maston.scot. I'm at underscore cjp at maston.social. Or you can drop us an email at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com. Talk to you next week, Chris. Cheers, Rod. Cheers, Rod.